What do you do when the leader of the free world is a racist? Well, I do a radio show. You listen to the radio show. We call it Wednesday or Thursday. I got the feeling that something ain't right I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Here I am Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you From the Pacifica Radio Network in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. We will return, no doubt, to Donald Trump's racism a little bit later in the program, if there is time for it. But, uh, well, this seems even more of note. Is Obamacare actually in trouble? Maybe. As my guest will detail shortly, uh, following oral arguments before the right, uh, the right-wing Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals down in New Orleans last week, where my guest was present for that argument before two Republican appointees and one Democrat. But first, in sort of related news, John Paul Stevens, the bow-tied, independent-thinking Republican-nominated, yes. Republican-nominated justice who unexpectedly emerged as the Supreme Court's leading liberal, and I'll put that word in quotes for now before we speak to my guest today about both this and that important court-related matter down in New Orleans. Uh, John Paul Stevens died Tuesday in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, after suffering a stroke on Monday. He was 99. During nearly 35 years on the court, he was the third longest serving member, and uh, he stood for the freedom and dignity of individuals, be they students or immigrants or prisoners. He acted to limit the death penalty, squelch official prayer in schools, establish gay rights, promote racial equality and preserve legal abortion. Again, the Republican nominated John Paul Stevens. He protected the rights of crime suspects and illegal immigrants facing de deportation. He influenced fellow justices to give foreign terrorism suspects held for years at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, the right to plead for their release in U.S. courts. All of that, even... 
uh, as I suspect Ian Milheiser will explain shortly, even as Stevens was a, yes, conservative. At least when that word had an actual meaning before it became little more than a catchy political brand, which Republicans found to be a popular brand, whether it meant that they actually represented real conservative values or not, or even understood what actual conservatism actually means. Stevens served more than twice the average tenure for a justice and was only the second to mark his 90th birthday on the high court uh, before retiring in 2010 from his appointment by Republican President Gerald Ford in 1975. He served through that retirement in June of 2010 and shaped decisions that touched countless aspects of American life. That, by the way, after he was initially appointed to the uh, uh, to the appellate bench by Richard Nixon. So, you know, I don't know if uh, Gerald Ford or Richard Nixon got what they wanted out of the appointment of John Paul Stevens, but... But the rest of the country got some more rights, got some more freedoms, got some more protections. Basically, it shows the death of John Paul Stevens has given us an opportunity to look back and we can really see how much the judiciary yeah. has shifted and, more importantly, how much the Republican Party has shifted away from, you know, what conservatives used to mean to this, this sort of radical right-wing bizarre idea that the Republicans have now perverted it into. Stevens remained an active... Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. <laughs> uh, Stevens remained an active writer and speaker into his late 90s, surprising some when he came out against Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation following Kavanaugh's angry denial of sexual assault allegations. He was once considered a centrist, but he uh, came to be known as a lion of liberalism. And he, nonetheless, he rejected that characterization. He said, I don't think of myself as a liberal at all. In, during an interview with The New York Times in 2007, he said, I think as part of my general politics, I'm pretty darn conservative. The way Stevens saw it, he held to the same ground, but the court shifted steadily to the right over the decades, creating the illusion that he was moving leftward, which to me sounds about right, which is why I don't or at least I try to avoid uh, describing today's Republicans as conservatives because I don't think they are. And frankly, because I think I am more conservative than they are a conservative progressive, if you will. And yes, there is such a thing. Just ask uh, Teddy Roosevelt. OK. And we'd like to. I would ask him, but he's dead. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for pointing that out. But same idea, though, you uh, know, that that conservative is uh, for people who are too young to know does not mean today what it used to mean. No, it doesn't. Now, Stevens did change his view on some issues. He morphed from a critic of affirmative action to become a supporter. And he came to believe that the death penalty was wrong. He said one of his regrets was that uh, he didn't decide against the death penalty as being lawful when he had the chance to do it back in the 70s. He also noted a few years back, as we reported at the time at Bradblog.com, that he was generally wrong in his majority opinion in 2007's Crawford v. Marion County Board of Elections. That is the case which granted Indiana the right to force voters to present photo IDs at the polling place before they were allowed to vote. Stevens wrote the opinion for the majority, the controlling opinion, which upheld a lower court ruling by the also very conservative, widely respected and oft cited 
Ronald Reagan appointee Judge Richard Posner, who in 2013 came to the decision that he got that case wrong back in uh, in that uh, Crawford v. Marion County case. Then that case was subsequently used to support photo ID voting restrictions in dozens of Republican run states where the restrictions are meant to keep legal, usually Democratic leaning voters from being able to cast a ballot at all, rather than to prevent the uh, so-called voter fraud that Republicans claimed at the time. This law was needed to prevent, and they still make that claim now. The false claim. It's a false claim. There is no evidence whatsoever that such laws actually deter polling place voter fraud. One of the reasons is because polling place voter fraud is so incredibly rare. In 2013, Posner... And this will get back to Stevens. Don't worry. Uh, Posner admitted that his majority opinion in Crawford v. Marion, quote, was wrong, admitting that he did not have enough information to issue that opinion at the time and saying, quote, that if the lawyers had provided us with a lot of information about the abuse of voter identification laws, this case would have been decided differently. Again, that was the conservative uh, 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 Ronald Reagan appointed justice, not justice, judge Richard Posner saying he got it wrong when he first allowed these photo ID restrictions at the polling places. He went on to write in a book that same year, he said, quote, I plead guilty to having written the majority opinion affirmed by the Supreme Court upholding Indiana's requirement that prospective voters prove their identity with a photo ID, a law now widely regarded as a means of voter suppression rather than fraud prevention. Now, following those uh, revelations, by uh, Posner, who uh, I think we reported at the time back in 2013 when I was covering all of this, uh, this story specifically, that uh, Posner is cited more by the Supreme Court and other courts than any other judge. So he's very well respected. Following his revelation that he got that case wrong, Justice Stevens who was retired by the time uh, he had he had, as I noted, written the controlling opinion confirming Posner's ruling at at the uh, lower appellate court. Stevens was asked about it and said, quote, my opinion should not be taken as authority that voter ID laws are OK. The decision in the case is state specific and record specific. He was not saying that all photo ID laws are fine and valid. But of course, that's not how Republicans cite his opinion today. Not how they cite it at all, as they have been misleading the public ever since that the U.S. Supreme Court found photo ID voting restrictions to be perfectly fine in Crawford v. Marion, and so we can do them anywhere, anytime we want. That's a lie. That's a lie. As I reported at bradblog.com in 2013, quote, contrast Stevens' remarks about his own decision in Crawford when he said, well, I didn't mean it should apply everywhere, with the duplicitous Texas Attorney General and then gubernatorial candidate, now Governor Greg Abbott's response when he was sued over the Texas photo ID law, their version of the law, when he disingenuously claimed, quote, the U.S. Supreme Court has already ruled that voter ID laws do not suppress legal votes, but do help prevent illegal votes. Well, no. No, they didn't. The court did not do anything of the kind, not by a long shot. 
Stevens, uh, back in 2013, continued his remarks in the wake of uh, Posner's flip-flop, if you will, back in 2013 to say, quote, I have always thought that Justice David Souter, in his dissent, got that thing correct. But my own problem with the case was that I didn't think the record supported everything that Souter said in his opinion. He got a lot of stuff off the Internet and in well, don't say it as if that's a bad thing. Justice Stevens, he probably got some of it for me. Anyway, he got a lot of stuff off the Internet and inferred things and so forth. But he added, as a matter of actual history, Souter was dead right. The impact of the statute is much more serious on poor, minority, disabled and elderly voters than evidence in the 2008 case demonstrated, he said. So even when Stevens got it wrong, he was able to admit it at least later, eventually, Anyway, we'll talk more about Stevens with Ian Milheiser after a quick break here. We had booked him today to speak about a completely separate issue. But since Ian recently wrote a book on the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, I suspect he'll have some thoughts on the passing of Justice John Paul Stevens today. So what did we hope to speak to Ian about? Well, the new and it seems to me very real court challenge to Obamacare that many had derided as ridiculous previously. Uh, but should they? The challenge to strike down the Affordable Care Act by a bunch of Republican attorneys general and now the Department of Justice was decided in favor of those Republicans by a federal court in Texas. And last week it was heard by a three judge panel on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And according to Milheiser, that hearing was a, quote, disaster for Obamacare. Ian Milheiser joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Thanks for staying with us. A panel of two Republicans and one Democrat on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit Court heard oral arguments last week in New Orleans before Hurricane Barry spun up in the Gulf threatening the city by last weekend in a case asking them to repeal the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare in its entirety, the case was brought by about 20 Republican-controlled states' attorneys general and is now backed by Donald Trump's Department of Justice, which actually flipped its position on the case in order to support the challengers who are hoping to strike down the landmark health care law, better known as Obamacare. According to constitutional law expert and Think Progress Justice editor Ian Milheiser, who was in the appeals court during oral arguments last week, 
The one Democrat on the three-judge panel did not speak, although she remains overwhelmingly likely to reject this attack on on Obamacare, at least according to Millheiser. The Republicans on the panel, by contrast, came to court wearing their partisan hats, he says. When Samuel Siegel, the first of two lawyers defending the law, was at the podium for his portion of the arguments, judges Jennifer Elrod and Kurt Englehart peppered him with questions, many of them delivered in a mocking tone. At one point, Englehart even accused Siegel of making an argument that betrays the American Revolutionary War. Really? Meanwhile, the three lawyers opposing the law did receive some critical questions from the two Republican judges, but those questions, Milheiser writes, were not especially animated and they soon trailed off. Kyle Hawkins, the lawyer who delivered the bulk of the anti-Obamacare arguments, spent much of his time speaking before a silent panel, punctuated mainly by listless questions from Elrod that seemed designed primarily to give the lawyer something to talk about. The most ominous sign of all of this is that the Republicans spent a considerable amount of time discussing what would happen, what would be the appropriate scope of a court order striking down the Affordable Care Act, a matter that obviously is only relevant if they intend to strike the law. As Milheiser notes, according to experts, an estimated 24,000 Americans will die every single year who otherwise would have lived if Obamacare is ultimately struck down. Well, this does not sound good, especially in a case that most had seen initially as ridiculous when it was originally filed a year or two ago. Joining us now is Ian Milheiser, safely back from New Orleans, I hope. Welcome back to the broadcast, Ian. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, good to have you here. It has been a while, and uh, before we get to that, I had, I had hoped, obviously, to talk to you about this uh, Affordable Care Act matter at hand uh, that could rob health insurance from, frankly, tens of millions of Americans, but... We lost the great Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens at the age of 99 on Tuesday. So while I am sad about that, I am happy to have you here specifically today as the author of a book, fairly new book about the Supreme Court in, uh, called Injustices, the Supreme Court History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. The headline for your coverage of Justice Stevens' passing last night at Think Progress sort of caught me somewhat off guard at first, Ian. It, it was the first I went to, by the way, but it caught me off guard because I'd forgotten the original history of the man who, when he retired from the court, was seen as the leader of its liberal wing. But your headline is, The Last Great Conservative Justice is Dead. Conservative? Was, was he really? Well, so here's the thing. So Stevens, you know, when, when he got on the court, he was widely viewed as a, as a center-right just, judge. He mm-hmm. was appointed by a Republican president. He personally held very, very conservative views. You know, you know, there was an interview that he gave late in life where he said, you know, I believe in the free market, and mm-hmm. I don't even really think that the minimum wage is a good idea. But what made Justice Stevens a great judge is that he knew that his political views didn't matter mm-hmm. when he was a judge. You know, he knew that regardless of what he thought about the minimum wage or Obamacare or, or whatever else, his job was to be faithful to the law and the Constitution. And so he rejected the silly theories that people proposed that would have struck down the minimum wage. 
he voted consistent. You know, he, he he was a believer in democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, he had most of his voting rights decisions. Although there is one exception, were very strong voting rights decisions. And because he believed in democracy, he was able to set his political views aside and let the law work. And that is all you can ask for in a judge. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do not care what is in the man's heart, and I do not care what sort of politician he would vote for, so long as, you know, he is doing his job well as a judge. And if we had conservatives like John Paul Stevens right now, mm-hmm. who understand that law and politics are separate, we would be in a much better place as a country, and we certainly wouldn't be looking at a major threat to the Affordable Care Act. Right yeah, now. and you point out, uh, in calling him a conservative, and this is why, uh, Ian, I'm one of the few people I think it drives me crazy, I don't call the bulk of Republicans out there conservative, because I don't think that they are conservative. Uh, I think it's a, you know, a nice brand name that they like to use, but that they are anything but conservative, whereas Stevens really was conservative. He really was conservative concerned about the rule of law. And as you note, in that uh, in that minimum wage case, he was against it, but said, yes, it's the right thing to do because Congress has passed this law and there is nothing in the Constitution that uh, prevents that from from happening, whether he agreed with it or not. Do you see any evidence of that ability to separate law from politics and, and personal preference on this current Supreme Court, this current stolen Supreme Court on on the Republican <laughs> side in any event? Yeah, so there's a softball right there. You're well, welcome. Let me say this. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court we have now is bad. And, like, the Supreme Court we have right now mm-hmm. has a majority that is often blinded by ideology. I think that if the current set of nine people who sits on the Supreme Court hears this dumb Affordable Care Act case that's making its way up. I think that Chief Justice Roberts has said twice that he's not interested in gutting the Affordable Care Act on some stupid legal theory. This one is the dumbest of the lot. I don't think that we have to worry about losing Chief Justice Roberts' vote that much in this case. What does worry me, though, is that there are four Republicans on the court who have shown virtually no ability to moderate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and especially in a case like this one. And if Trump gets another seat, then we're looking at a really grim future. If, if, if Trump gets another seat, then it suddenly strikes me as very unlikely that there will be anything resembling the rule of law well, on that court. Before we get to that grim future, Ian, uh, there was one other p- a specific point that sort of jumped out at me that I want to highlight here from your, your piece on John Paul Stevens. You wrote about Stevens having been on the losing side of an affirmative action case early in, early in his career as a justice when he actually believed affirmative action to be unconstitutional. Uh, you write that Stevens... Or at least illegal. Or illegal, right? Uh, you wrote yeah. that he uh, lost the argument on that case, a case called Bakke, I guess, for example, um, and that he accepted the loss gracefully. And then a quarter century later, when the question of whether universities can consider race in admissions reached his court again, Stevens voted with the majority to say that, yes, they can. He respected precedent. You write, he knew that the justices of today have no right to frivolously cast aside the wisdom of generations of judges simply because the newest justices think they know better. Your suggestion here is that even though he may 
still have been against uh, affirmative action on a constitutional or legal basis, that he respected the earlier court ruling as precedent to side with the supporters of affirmative action in that case. We are looking at a court right now uh, who seems to be signaling they are prepared to overturn one precedent after another. Is that something that is no longer uh, something that is respected by this court, the idea that uh, we should respect precedent, period? I mean, well, I mean, Justice Thomas wrote an opinion this term where he said, like, hey, if I, if I disagree with the decision enough, I'm just going to make it go away. Yeah. You know, I, I, don't care. I don't care about precedent. But I think that this court is very eager to bring about huge sweeping change. I mean, and not just change at the level of striking down one individual law that they don't like or saying this practice that previously was upheld is now unconstitutional, but at the level of systemically rewriting the balance of our entire federal government. Like, one of the big projects that Neil Gorsuch is pushing, and he looks after this term like he has the votes for it, is to dismantle much of the executive branch's ability, of federal agencies' ability to regulate, Mm -hmm. to make environmental regulations or labor regulations or health regulations. And under Gorsuch's theory, it's not clear to me that you can have a clean air act. It's not clear to me that you can have a clean water act. It's like Mm -hmm. much of the Affordable Affordable Care Act must go. Much of our law protecting workers must go. Much of our anti-discrimination law must go. Like, we're not just talking about discrete, okay, like, let's change our theory so this one or, so one or two things go away. They're talking about fundamentally reshaping the nature of our government and what that government is capable of accomplishing, and it's frankly terrifying. And it basically, I mean, I guess you could make these arguments uh, based on one's own reading of the Constitution, but in order to do that, you have to sort of ignore all of those precedents that we've been talking about and ignore everything that has uh, been decided in the, in the previous 250 years by the Supreme Court, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's right. I, I mean, you know, the, the ethic driving this is that conservative legal community and the Federalist Society in particular, they were traumatized by the war in court, which was a brief period, like the only period in American history, when we've had a liberal Supreme Court, they decided that entire swaths of 20th century law were invalid. And so they came up with these justifications within themselves for why it would be okay to say that most of the major decisions that the Supreme Court has handed down since 1937 are are, are illegitimate and therefore can be be ignored. Mm -hmm. And they just think they know better. I, you know, they, they, they think they know better. They don't respect democracy, mm. you know, because ultimately that's what this Affordable Care Act case is about. It's about the fact that in 2008 we had an election. Republicans didn't like the results of that election. They didn't like the fact that the people who were elected to do a job did it in a particular way. And now they think that because they control the court, they can undo the impact of that election. That's what this is about. Well, you know, that is maybe what this is about, but it doesn't seem like 
Stevens uh, wrote the uh, scathing dissent in Bush v. Gore, of course, the right. uh, infamous 2000 case that ended Florida's uh, recount and installed George W. Bush as president. And he wrote in that uh, dissent, quote, although we may never know with complete certainty the identity of the winner of this year's presidential election, the identity of the loser is perfectly clear. It is the nation's confidence in the judge as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. As uh, someone who has written a book on the history of the Supreme Court, Ian Milheiser, can can that case be seen as a sort of a turning point for the court from from what it was to now what it has become? Because it's always sort of felt like that, uh, like that to me, at least as a non-attorney uh, layman uh, looking at this. Seems like everything has changed since Bush v. Gore. Am I wrong or right? Well, I mean, it was, it was certainly a turning point in one important respect, which is that because Bush was installed as president, rather than the person who actually got more votes, mm-hmm. it meant that he got to run as an incumbent with all the advantages of, of incumbency in 2004. It meant that he got to replace Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice O'Connor. Mm-hmm. And it meant that we have the majority that we have now, you, you know. In the alternate universe where the winner of the 2000 election became president, you know, who knows if justices would have retired on the same schedule, and who knows how President Gore would have done in 2004. But there's a, you know, there's a very good likelihood that Justice Sotomayor would have been appointed by Gore, and he may have gotten another appointee as well. She might even be Chief Justice Sotomayor Mm. now. Um, oh, and you're like, killing, you know, you're killing me, been, Milheiser. You're killing me yeah. with that idea. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and we might have a very different majority. I mean, in the world where the Roberts seat and the Alito seat are instead held by two Democrats, that's a completely different universe. Well, that's what you get from stolen elections and stolen Supreme Courts. Uh, You conclude in your uh, coverage of the passing of John Paul Stevens uh, that he will be missed, not simply for what he did in his life, but for what he did not do as a justice. Stevens held one of the most powerful jobs in the country, and he respected Americans enough to use that power sparingly. Boy, oh boy, uh, good point, and uh, one that I wish uh, the, all of the justices right now would be reading, but particularly five in uh, in particular. I'm speaking with Ian Milheiser, the uh, constitutional law expert, editor of Think Progress Justice. Ian was uh, in the courtroom last week for uh, the oral arguments in this appellate case in the conservative Fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. This uh, case challenging Obamacare, uh, where uh, a Texas judge has already ruled it should be struck down in its entirety. Uh, This is a case brought by uh, 20 or so Republican attorneys general and now the Trump Department of Justice, uh, who seeks to strike it down uh, completely and... um, I mean, it was originally seen as a pretty quixotic challenge to the landmark health care yeah. law, uh, at least until that lower court judge in Texas found on the side of the challengers. And now, as the case is before this very right wing Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, you suggest the law could be in trouble. Bef- what, what's the general basis for this case that so many had scoffed at previously, Ian? Oh, good Lord. I mean, this is the stupidest case I have ever seen. Well, it's stupid, but it, it's it's moving ahead successfully. Yeah. Well, 
Well, let, let me take a step back and explain why it's, it's moving ahead. Okay. So this case was filed in the northern, in the Fort Worth division of the Northern District of Texas. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that little geography lesson matters is because there was exactly one active federal judge in the Fort Worth division of the Northern District of Texas. His name is Reed O'Connor. He was a former Republican Senate staffer, and he is a hack. <laughs> and they knew that if they got it in front of Reed O'Connor, Reed O'Connor would be a rubber stamp for whatever legal theory they came up with, and sure enough, he was. So they got it into a kangaroo court. The other advantage in filing it in the Fort Worth Division of the Northern District of Texas is that Judge O'Connor's opinions appeal to the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit is one of the most conservative courts in the country. The two Republicans on this panel were really wacky, and they behaved really partisan in in a really partisan way in the oral argument, but they're not actually outliers on that court. In fact, if anything, they're the median judges on that court. There are several judges on there who, like, you know, I think liberals like a lot less than than these two. two. Mm -hmm. So the point of this litigation strategy is not to come up with a viable legal theory and then win fair and square. The point of it is to file before a guy who you know is going to buy whatever theory you you, you come up with. Which they did. Yep. Have it appeal up to a court where you're probably going to get a panel that's going to affirm them because they're pretty ideological and that's the outcome that they want. And then use that process of getting two court decisions that if you don't know much about what's going on seem legitimate to kind of legitimize the entire process Mm -hmm. and try to create the political space to make it easier for the Supreme Court to affirm the decision. Now, again... Chief Justice Roberts has flipped over and voted with the Democrats to save the Affordable Care Act twice. Mm-hmm. This is a much dumber legal theory. Mm-hmm. I think that so long as the membership of this Supreme Court stays the same, I think that Roberts is probably going to do the right thing here. But these guys know how to breathe life into hot garbage, and that's what they did here. <laughs> well, the, so the hot garbage is basically... Affordable Care Act included a mandate right. that you had to uh, you have to own health care, and if you don't, you pay a penalty that uh, John Roberts uh, described in a previous challenge to be a tax. Then, if I have this right, in the I think it was the 2017 uh, tax cut that was uh, passed by the Republicans to for the rich yep. people, they zeroed out the amount of that tax to zero dollars. So you still have to buy health care under the Affordable Care Act, but if you don't, the penalty is now zero dollars. Right? There actually exactly. there, there is no penalty, and so the argument that they're making is because there is no penalty. This is no longer a tax, and therefore the rest of the law somehow becomes unconstitutional. It sounds ridiculous when I describe it. I must be describing it wrong. What am I missing there, Ian? No, you're, you're missing nothing. It is indeed exactly that ridiculous. So, so yeah, the original law before, like, before the 2017 tax bill said you had a choice. You can either buy health insurance or, or pay a tax. Mm-hmm. The 2017 law said that you still have a choice. Your choice is now you can buy health insurance or you can pay zero dollars. That's your choice. Right. So the law as it is written now does nothing. 
nothing at all. It's a completely not, you, you, you know, non-effective provision. It says that your obligation is to pay is to pay zero dollars. Mm-hmm. So the plaintiff's argument is that because that provision was originally written as a tax, right, or it was originally upheld by the Supreme Court as a tax, right, it it no longer qualifies as a tax because it raises zero dollars. And since it raises zero dollars, that means it's now unconstitutional because it's not a tax anymore. That's like I think that's wrong, but that doesn't actually matter because who cares <laughs> if a provision of law that does nothing is constitutional or not? Like, oh no, you know, you're going to strike down my nothing. You know that that, that that's what should be at stake in this case. Well, but then it gets weird. Yeah. Okay, so where it gets weird is this. There's a it's called severability. So right. Severability is when one provision of a law is struck down, courts have to ask whether Congress would have wanted more of the law to fall along with it if they had known that this one provision was going to fall. Now, first of all, there's a huge presumption in favor of not striking down more than the one provision, mm-hmm. but the Supreme Court says it must be evident that Congress would have intended more of the law to fall. And you don't even need that presumption here, because we know exactly what Congress would, would have wanted. Congress passed a law, and that law repealed one provision of the law, the individual mandate, it zeroed it out, and it did nothing else. That's the law they passed. So what we know from the fact that Congress revealed, repealed one provision of the law and then did nothing else, is that they intended to repeal just one provision of the law, and then they want nothing else to happen. This isn't hard. Well, did this argument get made? It it does seem clear that was the adjustment that they made to Obamacare. They made the mandate mandate tax zero dollars. That was the change they made. That was obviously what Congress wanted. Did the, uh, the, uh, the attorney who was defending Obamacare actually make that argument during oral arguments last week? Like, the problem is that, the, that there were two judges who were just a bunch of facts. Like, you know, the problem is there are two partisans on that court who are so drunk on their own ideology, or maybe I should be more charitable to them. Maybe they're just drunk on their own motivated reasoning. Mm. But whatever it is they've been drinking, it has led them to miss the most obvious thing that, 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 I, that could exist in the law. And so here we are on the cusp, and we're probably going to get a decision from these two judges striking down the entire Affordable Care Act. And and it's important to know what the stakes are there. There are 20 million people right now who are are insured because of the Affordable Care Act. 20 million. There's a a study a while back that looked at Massachusetts' health um, health reform, Mm -hmm. and it found that for every 830 people um, who gained health coverage, Approximately one is saved every year. One life is saved every year. Mm-hmm. So if these judges get what they want, that means 24,000 people will die every single year, year after year, for as long as their decisions stand, because they did not follow the law. You know, if, if, if an invading army did that, we would call it an atrocity. That's the sort of thing peacekeepers are sent in to stop. Mm-hmm. And that's what they want to do here. And the other argument that you make, uh, that you point out in your uh, in your coverage, I think progress, Ian, is that 
the arguments that the judges that you describe, the two Republican judges down there that you describe as hacks, and by the way, who were they appointed by? Do you, uh, I, I forgot to look that up, those two Republicans. Uh, one is George W. Bush appointee, and one, of course, is a Trump appointee. Oh, good. Okay. So uh, th- those two judges, you say, they seem to ignore the fact that, that, that they seem to be looking at something that J- Chief Justice John Roberts has already ruled on and the court already ruled on in the previous case, the uh, NFIB versus Sibelius, the previous challenge in which John uh, Roberts upheld this as constitutional. Why? Uh, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding why they were even entertaining that argument in a lower federal court if it was already determined uh, at the Supreme Court. Is this another case of they're not even paying attention to precedent at this point? So, so the theory, the plainest theory, is that NFIB held that the, that the individual mandate is, is constitutional because it is an exercise of Congress's taxing power. Mm-hmm. And so their theory is if it is no longer functioning as a tax, if it is now raising zero dollars, then it can no longer be a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power. And therefore, the zeroed out mandate is unconstitutional. And, like, that in and of itself is not a frivolous argument. You know, they're, they're, I think it's wrong. Right. But, like, that part right there, that, like, a mandate that does nothing is not a tax and therefore cannot be upheld under the taxing power is a non-frivolous claim. But here's the problem. The problem is that even if you accept that, they've got two glaring holes in their argument. The first one is what I said before, which is that their severability analysis makes no sense. Like, if the, the nothing burger mandate is unconstitutional, <laughs> right. then the solution is to strike it down so that the nothing burger mandate continues to do nothing. It's not to repeal the entire law. There's no basis right. for repealing the entire law. The second problem with their argument is more basic, and it's this. It's that there's a principle known as standing. So mm-hmm. you are not allowed to bring a lawsuit in federal court challenge a law unless you can show that you have been injured in mm-hmm. some way by that law. Like right. you know, you, there has to, you, Your plaintiff has to be someone who in some way is, is made worse off, and it could be a very minor injury. You know, if it costs you a cent, mm-hmm. that's enough. But there has to be some kind of injury mm-hmm. to the plaintiff. And the provision they're challenging, the individual mandate, does nothing. You know, it, it is a requirement to pay a zero-dollar tax. Nobody is being no hurt. No one is injured. Right. Yeah, like, like no one is hurt if they are forced to pay zero dollars. So, but why do they think that John Roberts will therefore support this? If he's rejected this, if it's uh, looking like they may not even have standing. I mean, here's what I worry about, Ian, and, and we're, I'm running short on time here. But, you know, a lot of people didn't think Donald Trump was going to win either. And they laughed that off. We didn't laugh that off. Uh, I, I, I see a lot of people looking at this case, sort of laughing it off, saying, oh, this is impossible. It's not going to be struck down. No way this argument is so stupid. And yet... Uh, we now see uh, the Hill reports this week that Senate Republicans are sort of in a bit of a panic and they are looking to now to replace uh, the Affordable Care Act in the event that the courts strike down Obamacare. The Hill reports there is, quote, a sense of urgency among GOP lawmakers to come up with a plan to replace the most popular components of Obamacare. Uh, after the panel of appellate judges last week aggressively questioned whether the law passes muster, 
uh, et cetera, et cetera, if they are beginning to take it seriously, um, perhaps we should as well, Ian. No? Am I wrong? Well, I mean, well, first of all, if they're actually coming out with, with, with a plan, it would be really easy to write. To, to, you know, I mean, I could write it in five minutes. You add a line to the wall saying, if the individual mandate is struck down, everything else stands, you stupid moron. Like, that, that's it. That's all. But that's not what they're doing. They're not striking down the individual mandate. They're striking down, they're moving to strike down the entire law. Well, no, 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 that, that's what I'd say. It's like, yeah. if you wanted to draft a wall that, like, if what Republicans actually wanted to do is save the people with pre-existing conditions and prevent this lawsuit from mm-hmm. succeeding, mm-hmm. they could do that today. Right. Like, all they have to do is add a line to the Affordable Care Act saying everything else stands. Yeah, of course, but that's not right. what they want. They want to kill the whole thing, and they're not going to do exactly, that. Exactly, so yeah. they're not going to do that. Right. Yeah, like, like they're, you know, they're, 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 you know they, they, at the end of the day, like, they don't want to take the political hit. Right. But, you know, given, you know, the fight that they went through in 2017 where they tried and, and repelled, mm-hmm. And fail to repeal the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe that they're going to be crying. That you know that that, that, that they're going to be crying in their very expensive scotch if <laughs> they discover that you know some court decides to do what they were unable to do in, in, in 2017. Uh, yeah, I, you, you. I think you're more optimistic than I am because I think that they realize that if this does get struck down, they never wanted it struck down. You know, in in truth, all they wanted to do was obviously to challenge Obama and. You know, they would have passed the exact same bill if there had been a Republican in there. But uh, so, you know, they were never really against it. Now, if this thing is struck down, this is going to be on their backs and they're going to have to come up with something to, uh, you know, restore insurance to millions of Americans, restore protections for all Americans for pre-existing conditions and so forth. Uh, I don't know. I, I just I think we ought to take it seriously uh and and hope for the best i'm worried that people aren't taking this seriously enough last question before i let you go yeah. ian what's the uh what's the timeline on this if the uh the, the three judge panel uh upholds the lower court and says yes it must be struck down then it goes to the supreme court or does it go to the uh, full panel of the uh fifth circuit court of appeals so it's a good question i think that if we get a relatively clean opinion from the fifth circuit just striking the wall down then that could be appealed to the Supreme Court, and like we should get a decision, hopefully restore, hopefully upholding the law by June of twenty of, of twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. I think the wild card is that the Fifth Circuit panel seems interested in a lot of kind of sneaky maneuvers that could delay resolution of the case. Mm. They could prevent there are ways they could try to prevent it from being appealed. They could try to send it back to the lower court judge for some unnecessary unnecessary proceedings. And so the danger is that they might try to extend the timeline there. And the reason why I say that's dangerous is because, well, I think it's fairly likely that the Supreme Court we have right now mm-hmm. would uphold the would uphold the law. I think that if Trump gets another vote, all bets are off. And so the, mm. the longer this thing lasts, you know, the more time there is for potentially the membership of the Supreme Court to change in a way mm. that would eliminate any kind of majority on the Supreme Court or, you know, any kind of sense in this case. Oh. 
well, that just sent a chill down my spine. Thank you very much. Ian Milheiser, you can find his work at thinkprogress.org. He is the editor of Think Progress Justice and the author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. You can and should also follow him on the Twitters at I. Milheiser. Ian, uh, always great talking with you, my friend. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. All right, thank you. You bet. All right, quick break, and we're back. There has been some breaking news, as usual, even while I was talking to Ian, and some thoughts on that vote in the House uh, condemning Donald Trump for his racism. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. This is where the party ends. I can't stand here listening to you and your racist friend. I know politics for you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. There was actually a lot more breaking news uh, while I was talking to Ian than even I thought. Uh, a whole lot here. Let's see. Just going down the list. Uh, prosecutors dropped a criminal case against actor Kevin Spacey a week after the man who accused him of indecent assault pleaded uh, pleaded the fifth, closing one of the few criminal cases of the Me Too era. Um, the House has killed an attempt to impeach President Trump for statements uh, condemned as racist, turning aside a charge that he'd disgraced his office. This was the uh, brought by Al Green, the articles of impeachment that were uh, read yesterday. And uh, somehow or another, they scuttled those charges today. We'll have to figure out what actually happened, and we'll let you know about it tomorrow if it's important. Also in the House, uh, they have now voted to hold Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in criminal contempt over the uh, 2020 census dispute and their failure to comply with uh, with subpoenas uh, regarding the 2020 census. So all of that just in the past few minutes. We'll try to make sense of it and let you know uh, what it actually means. If uh, anything, maybe tomorrow on the broadcast. <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, although, uh, yeah, the House is voting and these things are moving forward, often at a maddening pace. But things are moving forward, and I suspect the attorney general does not appreciate being held in criminal contempt in the U.S. House. Uh, people lose their law licenses for that. And, you know, and we're talking about the nation's top cop, the uh, top law enforcement uh, official in the country has now been cited for criminal contempt, at least by uh, the U.S. House. Well, he may not care. Yeah, he's going to retire. What does he care at this point? Just be Trump's personal fix, uh, fixer and get out. President Donald Trump's tweets telling four Democratic congressmen to go back to the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, unquote, was quite literally textbook racism. 
Matt Schumann, a Talking Points memo, notes today, federal law as enforced by the U.S. Equal, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission counts discrimination based on nation of origin as one of several kinds of prohibited discrimination, prohibited by law. One example that the EEOC lists on its website matches nearly word for word what the president tweeted and what all of the Republicans tried to argue uh, during the House vote to condemn him. Uh, That wasn't racist. That wasn't racist at all. Here's what the EEOC uh, lists on its website. Examples of potentially unlawful conduct include insults, taunting or ethnic epithets, such as making fun of a person's foreign accent or comments like, quote, go back to where you came from. Wow. Which is exactly what the president of the United uh, United States said. Uh, Highlighting the EEOC's language on Tuesday, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia wrote, the president's bigoted words are so contrary to who we are as a country that we literally have laws against them. In other words, if an employer had tweeted what Trump did at his or her employees, that employer could face a lawsuit for unlawful discrimination under federal statutes. In a post on his website on Tuesday, the Connecticut-based employment lawyer Dan Schwartz listed several legal battles that specifically involved taunts exactly like Trump's. One plaintiff who won a jury verdict against her employer recalled being told, quote, speak English, go back to your own country. If you want to speak Spanish, you're in our country. In another case before the, yes, right wing Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a co-worker of the plaintiff uh, had told him, why don't you just go back where you came from since you believe what you believe? Schwartz wrote, uh, suffice to say, that using language in the workplace that employees should go back to their country or words to those effect can and will be used as a basis of employment discrimination claims. Adding, I never thought I'd say this, but following the president's words can lead employers to big trouble. Even though Trump's attacks on the four congresswomen of color, three of whom were actually born in the U.S., uh, the other came here as a child and was uh, became a citizen as a teenager. Uh, even though that amounts to textbook discrimination, the president's allies in the Republican Party continue to decline to call him out. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Tuesday that Trump is, quote, not a racist. <laughs> I think he meant it, I, I guess. Uh, and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of uh, Republican of California dodged questions on the president's tweet saying that Trump had, quote, clarified his comments. Yes, he clarified them by making them worse, by claiming that the four members of Congress in question, quote, hate America. Even though he has no evidence to support that charge, while there is a mountain of such evidence, uh, some of which we shared on yesterday's program to suggest if anyone hates America, it would seem to be Donald Trump, at least based on his multiple repeated comments about how dumb our country is, what a big failure the U.S. is, as he repeated over and over during the Obama years. Um, so and there is no such evidence that any of the congresswomen of color that Trump has been targeting with his racist comments have actually said anything along those lines. Nonetheless, at the very end of yesterday's program, the U.S. House, after a contentious several hours of debate, finally passed their non-binding resolution 
Finding Trump's comments to, yes, be racist and not in keeping with America's ideals and uh, its long support for immigrants on whom much of the historic greatness of our country has been built over the decades. The measure finally passed um, with all 235 Democrats voting in favor. There were four of the House's 191 member uh, Republicans who were present on Tuesday, just four of the 191 who voted against the resolution uh, condemning I'm sorry, just four of the House, uh, the House's members who voted in favor of the resolution condemning Trump for his racist comments, um, which is just incredible. Uh, there were the, the four, and I think they should be noted here, at least, since apparently this is so hard to say that racism is bad. Uh, those four members were Susan Brooks of Indiana. She is retiring soon. Then there's Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Will Hurd of Texas. He's the only Republican Congress member to represent a border district, by the way. And Fred Upton of Michigan. Um, also conservative Tea Party Michigan Congressman Justin Amash, who left the Republican Party a week or two ago while calling for Trump to face impeachment hearings. Uh, he also voted to condemn Trump's racism. Uh, but uh, even when they voted to condemn Susan Brooks, for example, uh, said that uh, I believe our diverse backgrounds as Americans make our country greater and stronger. These differences should be celebrated by all of us. Today, I vote to condemn the racially offensive remarks the leader of our country made. Well, that's good. However, I remain disappointed that Democrats refuse to hold their own members accountable for their targeted anti-Semitic and hateful speech, she said in a statement. Oh, she had to go mess it up. She just had to ruin it, didn't she? Uh, I don't know if Miss Brooks is Jewish. I am, and I have heard no such anti-Semitic and hateful speech from any of the four congresswomen targeted by Trump, nor any member of the House, at least on the Democratic side, period, full stop. Anyway, kudos for voting the right way. Uh, negative kudos for being wrong anyway. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Ian Melheiser of Think Progress Justice, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made available thanks to the generous support by the folks who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. And if you haven't done so lately, please consider doing so today. We really could use your support. bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. And that is it for today. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, oh, oh.